Welcome to the Popecast, Episode 7. Lent is upon us, and we have just the Pope for this week. It's the guy who instituted giving out ashes on Ash Wednesday, the former monk, the humble, generous pontiff who basically founded Western civilization. This week, on our Ash Wednesday edition, it's Pope number 64, St. Gregory the Great. Hey everyone, I'm Matthew Sewell, author of the popular Popes in the Year daily email series, and this is the podcast about popes for people eager to learn about the vicars of Christ who'd rather not crack open a dry, dusty history book. Instead of going straight through from Peter to Francis, the Popecast jumps around through the centuries, telling stories of good and bad popes alike, all in an effort to draw out the importance of the papacy, the gravity of the office of Peter, and the inestimable value that the Catholic Church has brought to Western civilization. The man we now know as St. Gregory the Great was born in Italy around the year 540 AD. His family was one of great wealth and status, but also one of profound holiness. In fact, his own mother, along with two of his aunts, are listed among the canon of saints. And the medieval author John the Deacon called Gregory's upbringing one of a, quote, saint among saints. Gregory's childhood in general, considering it occurred during an age where Rome was constantly changing hands as a result of Gothic raids, was likely very tumultuous, despite his family's aristocratic standing. The Catholic Encyclopedia notes that it was probably these disasters, so Rome being captured by the Goths in 546, then abandoned, then garrisoned by another power, then attacked again by the Goths soon afterwards, and changing hands once more, all while Gregory was between the ages of 6 and 12. The Catholic Encyclopedia attributes to this disastrous series of events Gregory's penchant for writing in a more solemn, somber style and actually expecting the world to end sooner rather than later. Sound familiar? In any case, Gregory did receive a rich education, despite the turmoil, having eventually become, according to his contemporary, St. Gregory of Tours, second to none in the fields of grammar, rhetoric, and debate. He was also steeped greatly in the scriptures and was groomed initially for a prominent career in civil government. Before he was 30, in fact, Gregory was already made prefect of the city of Rome, a notable feat, even if that role held but a shadow of its prominence from centuries earlier. But in any case, after five years in office, Gregory decided he wasn't cut out for such a profession and resigned his post after five years. Instead, he founded six monasteries, six on his own Sicilian estate, you know, like you do, and became a Benedictine monk, taking up residence in his own home at Rome. Gregory lived the simple monastic life there for three years, which he called the happiest of his life. But, as is the case with those called to a life of greatness, it turned out he was needed elsewhere. Pope Pelagius II drew Gregory out of his seclusion, ordained him a priest, and then sent him as a papal legate to Constantinople to beg the help of Emperor Tiberius with holding off the Lombard army that was threatening Rome. Gregory ended up staying for six years as the Pope's nuncio, but his project as far as Rome was concerned was sadly a failure. But at the very least, it turned out to be one of the very few failures of Gregory's life from then on. He returned to Rome around 585 to become abbot of the monastery he founded, the Monastery of St. Andrew, and the community quickly grew famous under his rule. As mentioned, Gregory was a talented orator and a wise and holy teacher, so naturally crowds flocked to him from all around to hear and learn from him. The year before Gregory became Pope, 589, was an unmitigated disaster in Rome. 
Great floods ran roughshod through the city, carrying away farms and houses, and the Tiber itself overflowed her banks, taking out many buildings in the process, among them being the church's grain storage, which were used to feed the hungry when food became scarce. Death and disease naturally soon followed, crippling the city. And, as if to add insult to injury, Pope Pelagius himself kicked the bucket in February of the following year. Badly needing a shot in the arm, the people and clergy of Rome quickly elected Gregory to be the next pontiff. Gregory, naturally, didn't want the job. Preferring the life of a monk and fearing his own inadequacy for the post, he was also worried about the grandeur and public prominence that such a role brought with it. Writing to his friend St. Leander of Seville, brother of the famous St. Isidore of Seville, Gregory said, quote, "...following the way of my head, I had resolved to be the scorn of men." the outcast of the people, but the burden of this honor weighs me down. Innumerable cares pierce me like swords. There is no rest of the heart. I was tranquil in my monastery. The tempest arose. I am in the waves, suffering with the loss of quiet, a shipwreck of mind. End quote. He objected directly to the emperor, pleading that he not confirm his election, and it actually took a full six months for a final answer to come down. But the emperor, history can gratefully report, saw Gregory's greatness and refused. After hearing the news, Gregory was still hesitant and almost fearful, so much so that a crowd had to seize him and carry him to St. Peter's Basilica, where he was consecrated pope September 3rd, 590. He would reign as pope for 14 years, a papacy that included, as the Catholic Encyclopedia reports, quote, work enough to have exhausted the energies of a lifetime. Gregory began his papacy by writing the work Liber Pastoralis Curae, a book on the office of bishop, which he himself considered to be a game plan for his own ministry to the church over the ensuing decade and a half. Aside from that, as already mentioned, his output was astounding. He was a reformer in every sense of the word, including literally reforming Rome from the ruins of the floods that had been left behind and reforming the church in the places where it had fallen into disrepute. So in terms of temporal needs, Gregory made sure to feed both Rome's poor and needy, as well as the many refugees who had been coming to the city as a result of the Lombard invasions, paying for it out of the estates of the church. He was also immensely skilled in the church's financial and land management, believe it or not, considering the church had now amassed upwards of 1,500 square miles, as many as 1,800 square miles is thought, of property and was pulling in many hundreds of thousands of dollars of revenue from it annually. So much so, Gregory's talent was, that it's said that his tenants were actually a bit bummed out that Gregory was so good, since it was now near impossible to trick or cheat their newfound landlord. Anyway, he was even, as is a common trait attributed to our own Pope Francis, familiar with even the most minute of details, knowing the smallest of measurements when it came to distrib distributing corn or exchanging gold for smaller currency, and even finding time to write specific answers to questions or answer any complaint, no matter how seemingly insignificant. Gregory the Great almost sounded like financial guru Dave Ramsey in understanding that it was God's money with which he'd been entrusted, and everyone, down to even the lowest level manager, needed to understand and honor that, holding to the same principles themselves. All of this was done, I might add, while Gregory was almost constantly in ill health. He suffered repeatedly from indigestion, remember, no Pepto-Bismol in those days, he was stricken with a slow fever often, and for the last near decade of his life was afflicted with gout, which made it very difficult and painful to walk. But nevertheless, Gregory persisted. Aside from the temporal affairs, Gregory was most certainly no spiritual slouch either. 
He preached often on the scriptures, drawing immense crowds who enjoyed his simple style and use of anecdotes to better illustrate his points. He reformed parts of the liturgy, many of which actually remain in place to this day. The fact that the Our Father is where it is, the placement of various liturgical prayers according to the season and the year, and some additions to the Roman canon are all thanks to Gregory. Gregorian chant, even if just in seed form, is attributed to him through his founding of the famous Schola Cantorum, the choir schools in Rome, which sought to restore to prominence the ancient chant of the church. And he was actually the first pope also to use the phrase to speak ex cathedra or from the chair, referring to the dogma of papal infallibility. Lastly, it was Gregory who started the tradition of referring to the pope as servant of the servants of God. He also laid the foundation to lead the bark of Peter into the high Middle Ages, basically the founding of Western civilization as we know it, through his rebuilding of what had become a bloated, ailing church. The task was unimaginably formidable, with Gregory once writing, quote, The billows of the world so surge upon me that I despair of steering into harbor the frail vessel entrusted to me by God, while my hand holds the helm amidst a thousand storms, end quote. Still, Gregory made sure the holiest and wisest monks were his counsel. He made a point to give alms with great generosity, going so far as to empty his treasury, ironically, given his ability to manage the church's finances so well, and made education and evangelization the cornerstones of his papacy. Gregory not only wanted people to learn the faith, but progress in it and grow in holiness as well. What's more, Gregory himself stood as the example for his people, not considering himself accepted from the rule in the least. So Gregory died on March 12th, 604, and he was venerated as a saint almost immediately afterwards through unanimous acclaim of the people. It wasn't long afterward, considering his great contributions to the church through teaching, preaching, writing, and the acts of his papacy, that Gregory was named as the fourth great doctor of the West, along with St. Jerome, St. Ambrose, and St. Augustine. Pretty good company. As for his legacy, we picked Gregory for this week's episode because of his special contribution to the church's understanding and celebration of Lent. In particular, Gregory instituted a couple of specific things. So first is one, of course, that's familiar to all of us. We mentioned at the very beginning, and one that, that we'll all relate to today, if, uh, that is, if you're listening on Ash Wednesday. It was Gregory who's thought to have instituted the tradition of placing blessed ashes on the heads of the faithful during Ash Wednesday. Of course, in Rome, they actually put the ashes on the crown of the head, but uh, here in America, they put those on the forehead. But in any case, the first day of the Lenten season, Ash Wednesday, Gregory, of course, saying to each as they receive their ashes, Remember, thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return. The second one is likely uh, pretty foreign to most of us in the 21st century. Honestly, I didn't even know about this until I was researching for this podcast. Gregory, Gregory formally revived and formalized the practice of what are known as the Roman Stations. So churches designated for specific feast days, but which had special significance during Lent. So on each day of Lent, apparently the the clergy and laity alike would process in community to the day's station church, as it was called, singing and praying aloud as they went. It was often the case that the Pope himself would preside at each Lenten Mass, which was the only Mass held that day in the city, and on most occasions he would preach there as well. So in our quote, to finish this up, is, is also related to the season of Lent. It's a poem attributed to St. Gregory the Great entitled, The Glory of These Forty Days. The glory of these 40 days we celebrate with songs of praise for Christ by whom all things were made himself has fasted and has prayed. 
Alone and fasting, Moses saw the loving God who gave the law. And to Elijah, fasting came the steeds and chariots of flame. So Daniel trained his mystic sight, delivered from the lion's might, and John, the bridegroom's friend, became the herald of Messiah's name. Then grant us, Lord, like them to be, full oft in fast and prayer with thee. Our spirits strengthen with thy grace, and give us joy to see thy face. O Father, Son, and Spirit blessed, to thee be every prayer addressed, who art in threefold name adored, from age to age, the only Lord. So we give thanks this Lent to have had such a holy Pope like St. Gregory as our guide and example, who himself, of course, was imitating Christ in his mission during the 6th and 7th centuries. Even though he lived now more than 1,400 years ago, it's remarkable still how timeless his life and witness can be for us today. As we go, the success of this podcast will rely on two things, aside, of course, from the grace of God. First, to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or wherever you're listening to this and providing feedback on what you think. The more you rate, the more likely it's seen and listened to by others, and the better feedback I get, the better the podcast can become. And second, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Sewell. That donation, even at a buck per episode, will get you some sweet Patreon-only content, early access to podcast episodes, and will allow me to continue devoting time to producing these great bios. So that's patreon.com slash M-A-T-T-S-E-W-E-L-L, patreon.com slash Sewell. So as we exit this week, heading into the season of Lent, we especially ask for the prayers of our dearly departed pontiff, Pope St. Gregory the Great. Pray for us. Until next time. <laughs>